Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, Mexican writer and political analyst Jorge Castaneda on the politics of Latin America. A native of Mexico City, Castaneda was educated at prestigious institutions in the U.S. and Europe, has written several books on politics and enjoyed a notable career as a journalist. Castaneda served as an advisor to Vicente Fox's successful 2000 presidential campaign and became foreign minister during Fox's presidency. In his 1994 book, Utopia Unarmed, Castaneda examined the failed movements of the Latin American left. Now, in the aftermath of Mexico's contentious and polarizing presidential election, Castaneda takes a fresh look at political developments in Latin America. The fluid and dynamic political situation of the region is evident as some of Castaneda's insights have already been overtaken by new eruptions of violence in places such as the Mexican state of Oaxaca. In this engaging talk, recorded live at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion Grand Hall as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, Jorge Castaneda is joined by Andres Martinez, editor of the Los Angeles Times editorial pages. What I'd like to do very briefly is first to give you a quick sense of where I think Mexico is today after the uh, July 2nd elections and after the definitive ruling by the electoral court as to who won the election and by how many votes and how clean it was, firstly. Secondly, where I think President-elect Calderón will go, and I'm not sure I really know very much about what he'll do or where he'll go, but I'll try and be as specific as I can. And then to touch upon an issue which is so central in U.S.-Mexican relations that not touching upon it would be hypocritical. And, of course, it's the question of immigration, where we go from where we are today. Uh, First, the elections. Um, I will not pretend to any objectivity or impartiality on it. I publicly stated my decision to vote for Calderón. I called on whoever reads me in Mexico to vote for him. I may have added three or four votes to his total, uh, which actually, given, hey, he only, he only won by 200,000 votes, so it could have been worse. Um, but my sense is that we had essentially a free and fair election and that Calderón won. Now, I think the quid is probably in the word essentially. And also, by what rules did we have a free and fair election? Well, first of all, it's very important to underline this aspect. The rules by which we had this election, for better or for worse, and I didn't like those rules at all, because among other things, that made it impossible for me to run as an independent candidate. So I always was critical of those rules, but I didn't begin criticizing them once they didn't let me run. I began criticizing them from the moment they were drafted. But these rules were drawn up by the three parties in Mexico, by the PAN, the PRI, and the PRD in 1996. And the PRD was especially active in drawing up these rules. And one of López Obrador's closest advisors or aides, Porfirio Muñoz Ledo, who many of you know well, because he comes often to Los Angeles and has been around for a number of years, was one of the key architects of the 1996 electoral reform. 
These are not rules that were imposed on the left, on Lopez Obrador, on the people, etc., by somebody else. These were rules that were jointly drafted and approved and voted. One of the few things that perhaps has not received the attention in the United States that would be useful to draw attention to is that the seven justices on the electoral court that decided or ruled in favor of Calderon were all elected by the PRD, six of them in 1996 and one of them in 2005. Now, they may be everything that the PRD says today that they are, but then why did they vote for them? Got a problem there. So firstly, I think we had a free and fair election in the sense that it went by the rules that we had, regardless of whether those rules were good or bad, and I did not think they were great. Secondly, yes, everybody ganged up on López Obrador. He's absolutely right. The powers that be in Mexico ganged up on him. On the other hand, that's what happens to you when you start denouncing the powers that be. They generally don't like it. You tell a banker, I'm going to take away your bank. You tell uh, the rich, we're going to make you poor. You tell the Americans, we're going to be friends with others. Well, they don't like it. And they gang up on you. And they ganged up on him legally. Was it a fair fight? Well, it was fair by the rules we have. And it was fair in the way that people gang up. The powers that be gang up on their adversaries. What Lopez Obrador apparently didn't understand is that you cannot have it both ways. You cannot denounce the rich, denounce the privileged classes, denounce... Uh, the plutocracy, denounce the Catholic Church, denounce the United States, denounce everybody, and then have them vote for you. It's not going to happen. And it didn't happen. Now, is that unfair? I don't think so. But I think it's fair. Is it nice? Is it clean? Is it proper? No, it's not nice. Of course it's not nice. But elections are not a nice business. Ask John Kerry. Or ask Al Gore. They're not nice businesses, but nowhere are they. So I think that this is a second element. Was the election fair in the sense that it went by the rules, even though a lot of people ganged up on Lopez Obrador? Yes, they ganged up on him, but also they did it within the rules. And I think that's an important point also that I really would insist very much upon. And then thirdly, I would simply like to point out that I'm not sure, I wouldn't say I'm totally convinced of the contrary, but I'm not sure that we had the election that many people have cast it as being, the election of the poor against the rich, the south against the north, the countryside against the city. The, no, the electorates are very similar. Lopez Obrador's electorate and Calderon's electorate were very similar. If anybody got the vote of the poor, it was the PRI. Either because the poor voted for the PRI, or because the PRI voted for the poor, the way it always has, that is, voted in their name. 
It's been going on for 70 years, and these habits die hard. So it's not at all clear that we had that kind of a division. So this is the first sort of broad point I would want to make. I think we had a free and fair election with the rules that we had. Calderon won by a small margin. We have institutions that clearly do not work. I think Lopez Obrador is right in that. But again, he should have said so before, and he should say so now. We don't have a runoff. The runoff would not have put us in a situation of avoiding this mess, but it would have helped. And I can't help but contrast the situation in Mexico with the situation that Brazil lived through just Sunday night. Brazil is a country that has 70% more people than Mexico. It's four times larger, more dispersed, more unequal, more complicated. 10 o'clock at night, they had a final definitive result. Everybody agreed, accepted the result. And the margin whereby Lula did not achieve victory on the first round is not unsimilar to Calderon's margin of victory. Lula missed it by 1.1%, I think, more or less. Calderon won by 0.6%. This is not a huge difference. And Brazil is not exactly, you know, the, it's, this is not Switzerland. <laughs> and yet they were able to do this in a much more accomplished fashion than we were. Our institutions don't work, and we have to fix them. And there's a lot of institutional reform that Mexico needs. Secondly, where is Calderon going What can he do? Well, he has really two roads to follow. He has a choice. He can try and follow the steps of Clinton and Blair and Morris and Giddens and triangulate. Take some of the ideas or proposals or suggestions of his opponent, of Lopez Obrador in particular, transform them and make them his own policy. Let's say what Clinton did with welfare reform. But instead of doing it from left to right, do it from right to left. Take many of Lopez Obrador's proposals on social issues, on combating poverty, on education, on your universal pension scheme for the unentitled elderly, health care for the unentitled elderly. Do that. Transform them. Make them reasonable. Make them effective. Make them feasible. And... Try and push that. Try and get support in the Congress to finance these reforms, which are costly and will become much more costly uh, in the out years. Try and convince some of Lopez Obrador's voters, if not his cadres and if not he himself, that he really wants to heed the call of the ballot boxes and understand that he has to do something because X amount of people in Mexico a third, a half, what have you, don't believe in the system, feel that they are left out. That means inevitably going a bit against the guys who got him elected. Not just the voters, but the guys that ganged up on Lopez Obrador. Because they did gang up on him, and they ganged up on him for a reason, and now they don't want the president that they feel they helped elect go around carrying out the policies of the fellow they defeated. This is not exactly the sort of thing plutocrats like. And in Mexico, they probably like it less than elsewhere. So there's a logical temptation for another road to follow, which is to govern for the people who got him there. 
to govern for the people who elected him, who supported him, who financed him. The pan, the church, the uh, business class, indirectly the United States, very indirectly, and to have a very homogeneous team and policies that follow that direction and not reach out to a left that will not respond to any effort to be reached out to. And he will have to make a very difficult decision, Calderon will, between these two options of either trying to reach out and trying to bring people into the fold, given that he only got 35% of the vote anyway, and trying to placate his constituency, the people who voted for him. It's a very difficult situation, a very difficult decision. If he were to ask me what I thought, I would say follow the first one. But first of all, he hasn't asked me. And secondly, I'm not sure I would be able to argue my case very eloquently because it's a difficult choice to make. You're listening to former Mexican Foreign Minister Jorge Castaneda. This is Zocalo. Be sure to mark your calendar for a final round of thought-provoking events as Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series closes its 2006 season with two extraordinary lectures on military affairs and religion and science, as well as a face-off between the entertainment media of New York and L.A. To reserve your seats for those events and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Jorge Castaneda on Latin American politics. Now, before moving on to the other issue, the immigration issue, I'd like to emphasize one aspect here, which I think is very important, and which has a lot to do with both of these issues. The first one of what happened with the elections, and the second one of where Calderón can go. There seems to be a sort of politically correct, conventional wisdom view of what the Fox term has been, a failure, a disappointment, unrealized expectations, faux pas, or sticking his foot in his mouth every two or three hours, what have you. Uh, It makes George Bush father look like an eloquent statesman, (laughs) as Ann Richards would have said. I disagree with that viewpoint. I think that the Fox years have been good years for Mexico not as good as we wanted them to be, not as good as the country needed them to be, not as good as we expected them to be, but they have been good years. In these six years plus four years of Cedillo before then, we have had 10 years of uninterrupted economic stability with mediocre growth, but mediocre growth is a whole lot better than no growth or than negative growth. And we haven't had 10 years like that in Mexico for 40 years. And those 10 years have transformed the country. Millions of families have had access to credit, mortgages, cars, consumer durables, travel, trips, etc. Millions of families have been able to see their income increase through perhaps non-monetary forms and even some monetary forms. Millions of families have been able to enter a lower middle class that they were either excluded from or had never been able to reach for the past 30 or 40 years. 
and you can see it in the country. You can see it the beaches, you can see it in the hotels, you can see it on the plains, you can see it on the highways, you can see it's in the streets of Mexico City. The new Mexican middle class now is beginning to look Mexican. The new Mexican middle class doesn't look like me and doesn't look like Andres. <laughs> We're the old Mexican middle class. The new one looks different. And this is the most extraordinary, positive, exciting development Mexico has lived through in very many years, even if many people do not want to see it as it was. I think Calderón won because Fox was a good president and because Fox campaigned for him and because the country wanted to pursue this route. So in the worst of cases, if Calderón is unable to get anything done, if all he can give the country is six more years of this, that's not such a bad deal. We deserve better. We need better. We can have better. But that is not a bad deal if we can get that. And I think that's the floor from which we can work. Now, what does this imply for relations with the United States? Well, the first thing I'd like to insist upon since Andres brought it up and we've talked about it so much and Los Angeles is a city where I tried to make this point time and again, the central issue in U.S.-Mexican relations is immigration. It is absolutely central for Mexico and as we have seen the last couple of years, it seems to be quite central for the United States, at least if you believe Lou Dobbs. And I do, of course. It is a very important issue for the U.S., and it is a decisive issue for Mexico. And I think it was absolutely right on Fox's part to put this issue at the center of the agenda and to do everything that he could to try and reach some form of understanding or agreement with the United States on the immigration issue. Why? Because if we didn't reach an understanding, there was going to be a fence or a wall. It's not that there is a wall because Fox tried to get an agreement. It's that Fox tried to get an agreement because if he didn't, there was going to be a wall. And we talked about this and we wrote about this and we explained this 10 years ago, not only five or six years ago, because it was perfectly evident, I think at least, since the tragedy in Temecula and Riverside in 1995, when the 18 Mexicans in the pickup truck died in a car accident, that the United States was going to try and start closing down the border. And it would be more or less successful and would be able to do this more or less rapidly, but it was going to do it. And that Mexico had, in a sense, to slip under the border before the U.S. closed the border in order to continue to have the sort of situation or status quo that we have had with the United States on immigration now for roughly a century. So I think that was absolutely right. I think Fox was also right in underlining and stressing the fact that there was no possible understanding if it was not an integral understanding or what we initially called a single undertaking. If it didn't include both the situation of the people already here 
and the situation of the people who were going to keep coming for 10 to 15 years, there was no possible deal. No possible deal between Mexico and the United States and no possible deal between Democrats and Republicans in the Congress. And since we always knew you needed a deal with the Congress, but if you didn't have the Democrats on board, there was no way you were going to get a deal just with the Republicans. You could get guest workers just with the Republicans, but you didn't have enough. And you could get legalization just with the Democrats, but you didn't have enough. You needed both to have both. And that was very clear from the outset. I think the big tragedy in this issue is that instead of Bush trying to do this at the beginning as a bilateral issue, he decided to do it at the end as a domestic policy issue, and he couldn't deliver. Now you say, well, since when is U.S. immigration law and policy something that's talked about or negotiated with other countries? Well, as a matter of fact, it's not, except one country. There's only one country in the world that the U.S. negotiates immigration policy with. Quotas, visas, how they come, how they leave, etc. Who knows what that country is? Gotcha, huh? Wet feet, dry feet, does that say anything? Huh? Does that mean anything to you? Cuba, of course. The only country in the world that the United States has an immigration agreement with, signed, sealed, and delivered, is Cuba. That is, today, the United States has, with what it considers, I don't, but it considers its worst enemy, it has an immigration agreement. And with its neighbor and best friend, it doesn't want to have one. This is not exactly a coherent policy, to put it mildly. But we weren't asking for the world here. This was something that was quite sensible. So sensible that as we were talking today at the Times, and I'll conclude with this, the Senate bill that was passed last June, May, June, without being a perfect bill by any stretch of the imagination, is a good bill. It's a huge step forward. Creates problems, of course it creates problems. But compare the number of problems it creates with the number of problems it solves. To begin with, it solves a problem of about 6 million undocumented Latin Americans, Central Americans, Mexicans in the United States. Now, if you happen to be one of those 6 million, that's one hell of a problem that that bill is solving. Yes, it creates family reunification problems. Yes. Yes, it's very difficult to manage. Yes. Yes, the turnstile arrangement for the one- to three-year people is terribly complicated and won't work. Uh, yes, the path to residency is fragile. But this includes most of the things we were asking for. Now you say, well, yes, but the House didn't pass it. Well, of course I know the House didn't pass it. But wait a second. The Senate and the administration did. I want to know who among you would have thought back in 2001 that at least the Senate would approve a bill that looked quite a lot like what we were talking about with the Americans. Most people would have said there's no way that's going to happen, particularly after 9-11. Right now, in conclusion on this issue of immigration, we are in the worst of both worlds. We have the wall and we don't have a bill. Yes, it is the worst of both worlds. I'm not a big believer in the wall in the sense that I'm not sure it will happen. I think if it happens, it's a terrible thing. 
but I'm relatively confident that it won't happen. But nonetheless, I think that it is something that should be criticized, it should be denounced, and should be fought against. But at the same time, I also think that the key issue is not the wall, is not the fence, but the doors through which you can cross the fence or the wall. I don't care if there's a fence or a wall, if there are doors. I'm much more interested in the doors than in the fence. I don't know anybody in Mexico who would rather cross through Sasabe in the desert, 120 degrees in the shade in the day, and 20 degrees at night in the desert, if they can cross legally through a gate where everybody can go through. You know, sometimes we're kind of crazy in Mexico, but we're not that crazy. <laughs> you know, we'd rather walk through the desert instead of going through customs? Come on. We'd, of course we'd rather go legally. That's the whole point. Build all the fences want as long as there are doors or gates at the fences. I'm much more interested in the gates than in the fences. Right now, all we have is a fence and no gates. But if we have fence and gates, that's not a bad proposition for Mexico. And I think that it would help immensely in a very difficult year or two that are going to be ahead of us as Bush ends his term, as Calderón begins his term, we're going to have two very difficult years if we can at least start on the right footing with uh, the House changing its stance on immigration and approving the Senate bill and getting this in place by early January. It would be a marvelous start for Calderón and it would put the U.S.-Mexican relationship back on the right footing. Thank you very much. Thank you all. You're listening to Jorge Castaneda, author, journalist, and former Mexican foreign minister. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. On Wednesday, November 8th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents How Revolutions in Military Affairs Have Shaped History, a talk by L.A. Times columnist Max Boot. Boot offers a new intellectual framework for understanding contemporary geopolitics. This event at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve your seats and to download past radio programs. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, Andres Martinez, L.A. Times Editorial Pages editor, joins Jorge Castaneda as our discussion on Latin American politics continues. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Hi, my name is Kirsten Bangsness, and I'm a company member of Hollywood's Theater of Note and a member of KPCC since March of 2006. I'm a member of KPCC because KPCC is like delicious fiber candy for your ears that makes you smart and gives you information in a clear, concise way that's not all scrunched up by the man. I started listening to it, and I didn't pay for it until very recently. And the reason for that was because I was on unemployment, and whenever they said, just give that dollar or whatever, I felt like I don't have that. But then all of a sudden, I thought, I should. I should try to be like those people. So I, when I just thought that I could barely afford it, I did it. And then all of a sudden, I'm on a hit TV show as a series regular. So maybe if you join KPCC, you can be on a hit TV show too, or whatever is your idea of your dream thing. 
Just visit kpcc.org and subscribe. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to Mexican writer and former foreign minister of Mexico, Jorge Castaneda. In this segment, he's joined by Andres Martinez, L.A. Times editorial pages editor, for a spirited discussion on Latin American politics. I wanted to follow up on your discussion of the progress that's been made in the last five, six years on this immigration topic and how close the Senate came, or the Senate did its part, but how close the system came to delivering, in a sense, what Presidents Fox and Bush were talking about way back on September 10th, so to speak, in 2001. All that said, though, you've had a president of Mexico who's been unusually friendly towards the United States by historical standards and who at the end of his term basically has a wall to show for his efforts. And do you worry that one of the enduring lessons for Mexican politicians is that cozying up to the gringos doesn't pay off and you might as well engage in anti-American rhetoric? And is that one of the lessons that's going to be downloaded by the Calderon administration? Well, I think there's certainly a temptation there, Andres, and I hope it can be avoided. On the other hand, I would stress the fact that I don't recall since I began following U.S.-Mexican relations from roughly the mid to late 70s onward, there ever having been the kind of pressure that there was from Washington on Mexico regarding our vote in the Security Council on the invasion of Iraq that I saw. I wasn't in the foreign ministry anymore, but I was very close to everything that was going on, and I was aware of what was going on. And uh, I do not recall any time there being that kind of pressure. And Fox stood up to it. And this is something that on occasion has been underestimated. Mexico said no, which meant that Chile could say no, I wouldn't say comfortably, but more accessibly. That those were two votes. Pakistan and Angola, according to Colin Powell, were going to decide their vote on the basis of the two Latin Americans. So that's four right there. That was the majority, the non-veto majority that Bush wanted. Powell knew he wasn't going to get it. But Bush and Rice and Cheney and even Negroponte, perhaps, at the UN, thought they could get it. The fact that it was Mexico who was at the Security Council and Mexico that had that stance really was a crucial factor in ensuring that the U.S. did not have the support of the Security Council for the Iraqi adventure. Now, many of you will say, well, so what? Invaded anyway. Well, yeah, that's true. But first of all, that was not in Mexico's hands. And secondly, I think it's important that it be clear to everybody in the international community that when the United States decided to do something, in my opinion, foolish and wrong, the international community did not go along with it. And Mexico played a crucial role in that. So, yes, Fox has been friendly to the U.S., but he has also stood up to it on very central issues. We, are the first, we were the first government, the Fox government, to sue the United States 
at the International Court of Justice in The Hague regarding the application of the death penalty to Mexican citizens in the United States without consular notification. And we won, and the U.S. accepted the results of the suit, and there hasn't been another Mexican executed in the United States now for four years. Well, this is not a minor affair. We withdrew from the Inter-American Mutual Defense Treaty, the so-called Rio Treaty, the first country in Latin America to withdraw from this totally obsolete relic of the Cold War. So I would, first of all, establish these nuances. Now, where I agree with you completely is that there is the perception in Mexico that Fox was more friendly to the United States than other presidents of Mexico have been. I think that perception is false, but it doesn't matter. It exists. And I think there is also the perception that he got very little in return. And consequently, that someone like Calderón should be very careful with that stance. And as a matter of fact, he is already doing that. He has made statements, for example, regarding the wall or the fence that maybe I would be a little more careful with than he has been the last couple of days. Not because the wall is not something that must be denounced and criticized and combated, fought against, but I think it's important to place it in the proper context. Is there a wall? Or is there just an intention of a wall? Is there enough money for the wall? What kind of a wall is it? What will happen with the elections a month from now in the United States? Calderón is being very forceful on these issues, but I'm not sure he's being forceful on the merits of the issue or if he's not being forceful for the reasons you mentioned. Yeah, I guess you're right to point out the the Iraq debate, but I guess it never would occur to me to credit Fox with standing up to the U.S. on that, simply because, to me, it seems inconceivable that Mexico, under any scenario, could have backed the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And it's kind of alarming if there were people in the U.S. government who thought otherwise. You're listening to Jorge Castaneda with Andres Martinez. This is Zocalo. Be sure to mark your calendar for a final round of thought-provoking events as Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series closes its 2006 season with two extraordinary lectures on military affairs and religion and science, as well as a discussion and face-off between the entertainment media of New York and L.A. To reserve your seats for these events and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to former Mexican Foreign Minister Jorge Castaneda in conversation with L.A. Times Editorial Pages editor Andres Martinez. You also mentioned the role that 9-11 played in making progress on the immigration front obviously a lot more difficult. But when you look back at the course of the last five years, do you think we'd be where we are now had it not been for the 9-11 attacks? Or do you think the end game would have been quite different and an agreement would have been achievable? My sense, Andres, is that 9-11 always was a mixture on immigration with Mexico, huh? a pretext and a cause. It was both. I think the Bush administration was searching for ways from at least early August onward to wiggle out of the commitments it had made to Mexico in several official joint statements 
on reaching an agreement on immigration. And it wanted to wiggle out because when it made those commitments, it didn't really know what it was doing. And so they were trying to find a way out before 9-11. And in that sense, of course, 9-11 was the most marvelous pretext that they could come up with. It was also a reasonable or justifiable cause. In other words, you could make the point, certainly, that during the following months, the United States had to concentrate all its energies, all its attention, on that issue. And in addition to that, public opinion in the U.S. had changed. Where would we be today? I think absent 9-11, we would have gotten some kind of immigration agreement late in 2001, early 2002, which would not have been everything we wanted, but which would have included many of the things that are in the Senate bill today, that certainly the Senate would have gone along with it, and at the time, probably the House also. Because remember, at the time, the Wackos, the Sensenbrenners, the Tancredos, did not have the impact that they have today. And Bush was a very recently elected, very popular, very powerful president with a strong, very strong conservative base that was not able to stand up to him very easily. So I think we could have gotten something. Not what we were dreaming of, but we weren't dreaming. We knew what we wanted. We knew what we could get. Shifting gears a bit, I'd like to ask you, what's up with Hugo Chavez? I don't think there's a more elegant way of of phrasing the question. Uh, The Economist this week has a great cover with a picture of him and Lula, and, and it asks the question, you know, who's the leader of the Latin American left? But you spoke about the significance of being on the Security Council at the UN. It seems that Venezuela might win its bid to become a member of the Security Council, and we know Chavez loves giving speeches at the UN. But beyond the rhetoric and, and the atmospherics and the entertainment value, what's the real impact of what Chavez is up to? Well, the Security Council aspect is just one aspect and perhaps not even the most important one, but perhaps the most emblematic, and that's why it's such a big deal. But clearly Chavez has decided that he is not going to play by the rules of the game anymore. He has a point. The rules of the game are somewhat obsolete. What's not clear is who appointed him to rewrite them. That's the part that's a little confusing. But he does have a point. I mean, we were talking about it today. And there's, when he says, yes, of course I'm intervening in the Nicaraguan electoral process. Of course I'm giving free oil and money to the mayor of Managua so Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas can win again. And the Americans are doing the same thing. So why the hell shouldn't I do the same thing that the Americans do? Well, he has something of a point there. What's not clear, again, is who appointed him to be the one to write the new rules and whether others agree with the new rules that he is writing, others in Latin America. So I think the first important point is that he is breaking all the rules, and that is creating a very difficult situation. The second point is that beyond the question of principle, can one country, one ideology, one faction of the left in Latin America support its allies or its friends in other countries, which is a valid question, what kind of a left is it? And I think the Economist cover says 
with one picture much more than I was able to say in 10,000 words in an essay in Foreign Affairs four months ago, but it was essentially the same point. There are two different lefts in Latin America. One is the left that Chavez and Castro and Evo Morales and Uyanta Humala and Lopez Obrador represent. And the other is the left that Lula and Michelle Bachelet and Tabaré Vázquez in Uruguay represent in other countries. I happen to think that the left that Chavez leads and represents, also the Cuban left, is a disaster for Latin America. And I also happen to think that the other left is what Latin America needs. There is one success story in Latin America over the last 20 years, and it's Chile. It's an unquestionable success story. The problem is that it's a terribly unsexy success story. It's a bore. And it's very difficult to sell a bore. You know, yes, we've reduced poverty from 28% to 12%. Oh, great. Yes, education has improved from 8th grade to 11th grade. Yeah, so what? Tell me something funny. Tell me something I don't know. Tell me something interesting. But there is a success story there. It is the only success story that Latin American can point to over a sustained period of time. If you compare the Chilean numbers to the Venezuelan numbers or to the Cuban numbers the last 20 years, there is simply no comparison. Chile, with another 5 to 10 years of this situation, will become a poor, rich country. Be sort of like Portugal. It's not bad Portugal. There's worse things than Portugal. For Latin America, this is an enormous step forward. It's the first case of graduation we have on this. Few things are less sexy than low inflation. You're listening to former Mexican Foreign Minister Jorge Castaneda with Andres Martinez, editorial page editor of the Los Angeles Times. This is Zocalo. 2006 has been a busy year for Zocalo Radio. Click on Zocalo's website to hear radio guests such as this year's Nobel Peace Prize winner, Mohammed Yunus, pioneering gay activist Malcolm Boyd, actress Marriott Hartley, writer Susan Laurie Parks, and many more. Visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Up next, it's the audience's turn to ask questions of Jorge Castaneda. Stay tuned to Zocalo. For just a few pennies, you can drive a car in virtual reality, just like Steve. Cool. So okay. we're both in the car and we're driving off. Yeah, so I'm going to back up a little. We seem we, to be flying oh. in the car. We just plunged into the river. Hey, What's the matter with you, man? You could, I'm not a great driver in real life or in second life. I'm Renee Montaigne, making millions of real dollars off an imaginary world. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. Hi, this is Carrie Moran, host of Weekend Edition here on 89.3 KPCC. We want to take a moment to send out a huge thank you to you and the 8,100 new and renewing members who contributed nearly $1.1 million to our fall fundraiser. You can become a member anytime at kpcc.org or by calling 866-888-5722. And many, many thanks.
Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. In this final segment with former Mexican Foreign Minister Jorge Castaneda, the Zocalo audience gets its turn to ask the questions. Why don't we take some questions from the, from the audience? I don't know. Okay, good. why don't we start on this side? I respectfully disagree with you about your statements regarding the two left. And my question would be, when was the last time that you were in Venezuela in the tiny towns where my family lived and where my brother, who is uh, 42 years old, wanting to migrate to the United States like me 15 years ago, trying to escape poverty, now has decided to remain there because there is opportunity for him there. You know, he's going back to college. My mother, who is a 62 years old woman, is going back to high school, and that's what we don't hear in the media about what's going on in Venezuela. So that's my question for you and for a lot of people that talks about a country that they don't know. I haven't been back to Venezuela since I went as President Chavez's guest in late 2001 when we did visit several areas of, of Caracas. And uh, both Fox and I and uh, others were impressed with many of the social programs, which then had not really begun yet. They began mostly after 2003. The question is not so much that. We have all witnessed in Latin America, I lived through several of these cases in many countries, you may have also, that well-intentioned efforts but poorly rooted, poorly financed, poorly conceptualized, poorly planned efforts to help the poor don't work. At the end, the people who come out being worse off from those efforts are the poor. When you have a windfall, when you have money, when you have an opportunity, of course it makes sense to try and spend that money on the poor. But, you know, we did this in Mexico under López Portillo. The price of oil increased as much between 1978 and 1981 when López Portillo was president as it has now. And in addition, we increased enormously our exports of oil during that period, which Venezuela is not doing. It's just the price that's rising, but not the volume. It was an enormous windfall, and a lot of the money was spent on similar things. The whole, what is now called Progresa, or and before was Solidaridad, and at the time was called Inscoplamar, was an anti-poverty program that worked. Of course, it worked until you ran out of money. And then what do you do? So my doubt is not so much about the intrinsic value of anti-poverty programs, my doubt is on this question, whether that is the best way to combat poverty. Internationally, it would seem to be that it is not. But that's what we're going to have to see, depending on what happens with the price of oil. And then there are the other considerations regarding Venezuela, but you focused your question on the issue of poverty, and I wanted to limit my answer to the issue of poverty. My question has to do with the economic growth within Mexico and Latin America and the China factor. A lot of the jobs that were originally outsourced to Mexico from the United States ended up in China. Now China has become a client, a customer for raw materials from Latin America. How is that going to affect the plans for economic growth in Mexico and in Latin America? 
I think one of the great challenges that Mexico faces over the next 10 to 15 years is where we are going to find jobs for the roughly 1 million Mexicans who enter the labor market every year. It's going to be increasingly difficult to find them jobs in competitive export industries making things because the Chinese make things cheaper and they will continue to make things cheaper. That's practically impossible to combat. It's not a problem in Mexico. It's mainly a problem in the U.S. We are losing our market share in the U.S. and even in bulky things like refrigerators and maybe soon to automobiles. Mexico has to begin moving up the value-added ladder, moving increasingly towards services and exporting services instead of exporting things because the Chinese are better at making things than others. They will eventually also be very good at exporting services, but that will take another 20 or 30 years. And there are some things that the Chinese cannot compete with us in because geography just doesn't allow it. For example, proximity. There are a lot of people in my country who would prefer for us to change places with China. <laughs> uh, but probably not going to happen. So... There are a series of advantages that Mexico has that it has to take advantage of, and it has to find those niches in the export of services, whether it's tourism, whether it's healthcare, whether it's back office, whether it's knowledge processing, whether it's information technology and processing, whether it's more value added in seasonal, agricultural, etc., which we have to start doing. We can't continue exporting refrigerators. We were the world's largest manufacturer and exporter of televisions as recently as 15 years ago. Today, most of the television plants in Mexico are closing, and they're all moving to China. Uh, and that's going to keep happening with the next bulky things. So we have to address that issue. We have to address it strategically. We have to address it from the point of view of education. We have to address it from the point of view of a national strategy of finding which are the niches in which we think we can be competitive. Mexico is too open an economy today to not be worried about being competitive. Maybe we shouldn't have gotten to where we are today, but this is where we are. So now what do we do? I think I read in a book of yours you cited what you considered to be two curious features of North Americans. One is a trust in the rule of law, and the other is a sort of pervasive sense of guilt. I think that was you, and if so, uh, would you elaborate on this a little bit, in the view of Americans from Mexico? I'm not sure about the, the, the sense of guilt, but I think, you know, perhaps what you're trying to refer to, my, my point in that, I don't know, interview or, or article or essay I tried to write was a little bit, I think, about the question of immigration. Let me turn it around and say, I had this discussion, and I must say he was a very affable and pleasant gentleman, even though I didn't agree with him at all, with John Ashcroft when he was Attorney General. And he didn't make me pray or anything. Um, <laughs> And you have to understand, he said, that the rule of law in the United States is basic and we can't reward people who have broken the law. Okay. So I said, I understand, Mr. Attorney General, but look at it from this side just for a moment. Which laws 
have Mexicans broken over the last hundred years? Because you've changed your immigration laws so many times. You have turned the other cheek so many times. You have had hypocritical laws so many times. You have ignored your own laws so many times. Which are the laws that Mexicans are supposed to respect? The so-called Texas Proviso from the 1950s, which made it illegal for foreigners to be here without papers, but made it legal for employers to hire them? That's the rule of law? Or the don't ask, don't tell voluntary deportation system, which existed from the 70s through 1986, where people were apprehended. They asked, you want to be deported or you want to be sent back? Want to be sent back? All right, go. Go, meaning cross the street. Go. <laughs> and they'd be back the next morning. And everybody knew they were doing that. And when the border patrol would look the other way and, or, or play soccer with the migrants on the border until it was nightfall, and then they could walk across. So which are the laws that Attorney General Ashcroft wanted Mexicans to respect? Because while this is the law now, well, yes, I know this may be the law now, but the problem is that we've been coming here for more than a century now. And we have gone through I don't know how many versions of U.S. immigration laws. So which ones are the ones? Or you want all the immigrants to be lawyers? Well, yeah, that would be great, because then they wouldn't be immigrants. Did Ashkoff make you sing when eagles soar? No, <laughs> I didn't sing and I didn't pray. Lucky you. There's a lot of states and small towns that are not waiting for the federal government to enact laws that will stop immigration. And so they're just going ahead and making all these different laws. For example, it's illegal to rent to illegal immigrants. What is this going to do to people living in the shadows? And is this going to have any kind of an effect when they start deporting people? I, I was in a little town, tiny little town in the middle of nowhere in Ohio a couple of weeks ago called Middletown, Ohio, where they have one of the three campuses of Miami University of Ohio. And they take me out, the faculty people take me out for dinner, and they invite you know, several people who, of course, all happen to be Mexican undocumented migrants in Middletown, Ohio. I mean, there had never been a Mexican there you know, since time immemorial. It's a town of 60,000 people, and there are now over 1,000 Mexicans living in Middletown, Ohio. And they've arrived in the last six years. There's a sheriff there, Sheriff Jones or something, I think, of Butler County, who's one of these wacko sheriffs who wants to do things on his own. And he stops people, he profiles people driving, walking on the streets, uh, things that if they were taken to the Supreme Court would probably be declared illegal and un unconstitutional, and they eventually will be taken to the Supreme Court. And he is making, trying to make life miserable for the Mexicans. And it's not just Mexicans, it's mainly Mexicans. But what is really happening? What's really happening, and I organized a sort of breakfast which, with another 20 Mexicans the following morning, what's really happening is nothing. The sheriff talks the talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. He's not deporting anybody. He's not really harassing anybody. He's just getting on the news and making statements to the papers. 
the companies, the contractors that hire Mexicans for landscaping in Butler County, for garbage work, for construction, got scared for two or three weeks, stopped hiring them, laid them off for two or three weeks. It was a problem for the Mexicans. And then the companies came right back three or four weeks later and hired them all back and forgot the sheriff and forgot the racism and said, look, we want to keep working this way. My sense, quite honestly, is that there is much more rhetoric in all of this. The raids, I was asking, are extremely distinguished, and I thank him for accompanying us, our extremely distinguished Consul General of Mexico in, in Los Angeles, uh, Ambassador Ruben Beltran, who's with us tonight. What's the situation on the raids in the L.A. area? Um, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but really, with an exception of a few days back in April, May, very little has happened. And the same is true. I talk to most of our consuls. I mean, they're my friends. They're, I'm not their boss anymore, but they're all my friends, or most of them are my friends, not everyone. Most of them are, and I speak with them often, and I ask them what's going on, and I tend to get the same answer always. We had a few bad days. There were problems. The ICE people did create problems for some, but by and large, this is now gone by. So I'm a little concerned that we be fighting windmills here. If there are real issues, they have to be combated. And the Mexican government has to do its job, but the Catholic Church has to do its job. Democrats, the unions, the Latino organizations have to do their jobs. The courts have to do their jobs. But I'm not sure we should create a war here, which I'm not sure is really taking place on the ground beyond the rhetoric and the scare tactics and incidents which are real and which can be very terrible. But how many Mexicans have been deported since May or June? Very, very few. And there are 6 million Mexicans without papers in the United States. And there are 12 million Mexican-born individuals in the United States. How many have been deported? I think it's a question that requires answering. Thank you, Andres. Thank you. Thanks for being here. You've been listening to Jorge Castaneda, former Mexican foreign minister and chronicler of the Latin American left. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stenzel. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening.